Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. Well, this morning is going to be a tough subject. And I left my sermon in the chair, so I'll just wing it. Eileen, <laughs> will you hand me that? You're so amazing. Thanks. I figured you would dance it up to me with a flare. No? Eileen is a dancer, and she does very well at dancing. So, All right, here we are. How do we tackle a subject like Job chapter 1? Uh, it is a part of our annual reading. We're going th- reading through the Bible this year, and this is the month where Job falls into play. Um, I don't know many pastors who enjoy preaching through Job. I'm being honest. Um, I don't particularly enjoy it, but honestly, there's truth to be found in all of God's Word. Job is a tragedy, literally. Job experiences a great amount of tragedy in life. The question is, I don't, well, here's the question. Why? Job is a part of the seventh grade curriculum whenever I'm teaching seventh grade at Penn Christian Academy and my students just now walked out the door. I was going to call on them too. (laughs) Get back here. (laughs) Anywho, um, when I teach at Penn Christian Academy, there they are. Oh, they had to go get their sermon notes. Welcome back. So glad you're here. They hate it when I call them out, but they secretly love it. (laughs) I'm not going to call on you. But we go through the story of Job in the Old Testament in seventh grade. And um, the question that they learn that Job asks is why? That is the one question asked by Job. And as we get into his story this morning, if you've never heard of Job's story, you'll understand why he asked the question, why? Pastor Glenn Davidson of Delkenna Community Church felt God's calling into ministry while working as a successful businessman. Some people are called out of vocations and into ministry later on in life. Right, Bill? Yeah. He began taking Bible courses at night and eventually obtained his Bible school degree. Prior to graduation, he informed his boss that he'd be leaving work shortly to go and work as a pastor at a rural church nearby. Neither the owner of the company nor the boss believed that he was actually going to quit his job. It was a fairly lucrative job. He was making really good money. Why would he leave the business world, to go be a pastor at a podunk church in rural America where he wouldn't be able to rub two nickels together. Eventually, Glenn told the boss that he really was leaving because they weren't planning to replace him because they really didn't think he was going to leave. 
And they needed to, he says, you need to locate a replacement for me as soon as possible. So the owner of the company did this. Listen to what he did. Doubting Glenn's sincerity of becoming a pastor, he instructed Glenn's boss, offer him a $500 raise on the spot, and if he takes it, fire him on the spot. Motivation. Are you a person of your word? Is what you say what you mean? What are your motives behind what you do in life? What is it that drives you? What is it that gets you up in the morning besides the alarm clock or having to go to work? What is it that you live for? You see, I beg the question of whether or not the church realizes its reason for living. I think a lot of people sit in the pews of our churches across not only this nation but the globe thinking that they're going to get something out of it. Do you know how often I hear that? Well, if you don't give me what I want, I'll just move on down to the next church. We got this consumeristic mentality that it's about me, 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 me. When who should it be about? So what is your motive for even stepping foot inside a facility with the body of Christ? Are your motives pure and honest? Do you love God for God's sake or do you only love him for what you can get out of him? And then when he doesn't give you what you want or protect you from hurts and harms, do you throw your hands up and say, I don't think I know you, God. Jesus oftentimes, when he was on the earth, and we can read about this in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels, he was constantly drawing a line in the sand, figuratively, sometimes drawing in the sand literally. But he drew a line in the sand. Why? Why did he do that? He would constantly have a mass of people walking with him from town to town to town. He was the latest, greatest thing. And yes, literally he was, but they weren't following him for who he was. They were following him for what he did. They were following him to see what is he going to do next? What great circus act is he going to do that's going to be, whoo, that was cool. Do it again, Jesus. Can you blow fire out your mouth next time when you're doing it? Can you make those rings pop together and then unpop? You know what I'm talking about? You've seen the magic? Okay. Can you put, what do you have up your sleeve, Jesus? There are too many people who say they believe in Jesus, but are only following him for what they think they can get out of him. Do you know when revival will come to the church and to this land? When God's people begin to follow him for his sake rather than for their own. It's not happening before then. And the only way that's going to happen is through prayer. No revival has ever come that has not been birthed out of prayer and a sincere, 100% unadulterated desire for God and God alone. So let's look at Job. 
Scholars, some believe that the story of Job is just an ancient parable, not a real person. But Jesus speaks of Job. And so if Jesus speaks of Job as a real person, I like to think Jesus probably knows more than I do. So I assume Jesus knows that Job was real. And so as I go to the book of Job, I look at it as a real story of a real thing that happened to a real man. He lived in a land called Uz. It sounds like the Wizard of Uz, you know, with Dorothy and her dog Toto, but it's a whole different scenario, okay? The land of Uz, we don't know where it is. Most scholars think they have a general idea. It seems to be, if you look at a map of modern-day Israel and you go direct east and maybe south, to where the ancient territory of Edom was. It could be there, which is modern-day Saudi Arabia. It could be a little bit northern, maybe closer to Iraq. We just don't know. But we know it wasn't in the area commonly called Israel. We do know that the book of Job is the oldest book of the Bible. Even before Genesis was written, the book of Job was written. So when you look at the book of Job, consider that it was written way, way earlier than any of the other books of the Bible. And the author tells us about this Semitic man, this Middle Eastern man called Job. He had a lot going for him. And here's where we pick up his story in Job chapter 1. I'm starting with verse 1. I'm reading from the New Living Translation this morning. If your version is different, it may read slightly differently on your page. There was a man named Job who lived in the land of Uz. He was blameless, a man of complete integrity. Wouldn't you like that to be said of you, right? If that was my reputation, I would feel pretty good. He feared God and stayed away from evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 teams of oxen, 500 female donkeys. Needless to say, he was a wealthy man by that day and age's standards. To have a lot of livestock meant you had a lot of wealth. He also had many servants. He was, in fact, the richest person in that entire area. Now, Job's sons would take turns preparing feasts in their homes, and they would also invite their three sisters to celebrate with them. When these celebrations ended, sometimes after several days, they partied hard, is what it means to say. When these celebrations ended, sometimes after several days, Job would purify his children. He would get up early in the morning and offer a burnt offering for each of them. For Job said to himself, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This is... This was Job's regular practice. So what's a burnt offering? There are multiple different offerings in the Old Testament. A burnt offering is just this. It's where you build an altar uh, with a whole stack of wood, and you take an animal such as a sheep or a goat, which he had plenty of. It would be unblemished. It would be pure. It wouldn't have any spots on it. He would take that lamb, slit its throat, let the blood pour out from it. They would lay it on this altar. And a burnt offering is where everything was consumed by the fire. It's what's called a burnt offering. 
This is an offering completely and utterly and solely for the purpose of worship and surrender to God. This was the kind of offering, if you read in Genesis about Abraham and Isaac, and Isaac's going up to the top of Mount, the, the mountains of Moriah, and he's going to be sacrificed. He was going to be sacrificed and burnt as a burnt offering. He wasn't going to keep a big toe or anything like that. I'm sorry. I just, my, my mind goes like, he wasn't getting like a lucky charm or something like that. Is that a little over the line? Okay. So he wasn't going to do that. A whole burnt offering is keeping nothing. So why is that important? Because there were other offerings where the priesthood was allowed to keep certain portions of meat after the fat had been boiled off of it. And when the fat had been boiled off, that was a part of their sustenance, their, their means of living, as they would take certain portions of the sacrifice for their own benefit, which was allowed. But a burnt offering, nobody took it except God. Okay? I don't know why I lingered so long on that. Just giving you a little Jewish history. He'd get up and he would do this for each of his kids. How many kids did he have? Ten. Seven boys, three girls. And what would, what would happen? He would make these sacrifices just in case. He never said they sinned, but just in case they did. So these parties that could last several days. And yes, it was not grape juice. More than likely, it was fermented wine. Do you lose your senses when you get drunk? Well, we're not to be drunk anyway, Right? except by the Holy Spirit, according to the New Testament and Paul's writings. But in those days, don't you do stupid things when you get drunk? Have you ever seen somebody who's drunk? Hmm? I grew up, my mom, hear me on the, my mom's in Kentucky watching right now. She loves me for this. But before she came back to Christ, she and my dad would throw these parties at the house, mainly my dad. And I would, as an, uh, an eight, nine, ten-year-old, see these adults that I looked up to just blubbering idiots, staggering, cry, some, you know, seriously, sleepy drunks, happy drunks, sad drunks. I saw it all. And a part of me was like, what in the world is so enticing about this? I mean, as an eight or nine-year-old, I'm thinking, they act stupider than I do. All the picture to say, Job is thinking, my kids may have done something really stupid during one of their feasts. They may have said something. They may have even uttered words that were contemptible to God. And just in case they did that, I want to make sure they're purified so that God looks on them with favor. I don't want them to incur God's wrath or judgment. This is the kind of guy Job was. He wasn't an every man for himself kind of guy. He cared for others as much as he cared for himself. And his most important care was for the Lord. So then, verse 6 is when we get into the real big meat of the text. One day the members of the heavenly court came to present themselves before the Lord. And the accuser, Satan, came with them. Well, where have you come from, the Lord asked Satan. Well, Satan answered the Lord, I've been patrolling the earth watching everything that's going on. Then the Lord asked Satan, have you noticed my servant Job? 
He's the finest man in all the earth. He is blameless. He's a man of complete integrity. He fears God and stays away from evil. Satan replied to the Lord, to the Lord yes, but Job has good reason to fear God. You've always put a wall of protection around him and his home and his property. You've made him prosper in everything he does. Look how rich he is. But just reach out your hand to take away everything he has, and surely he'll curse you to your face. Job's only worshiping you because of what you bless him with. You take it all away, he will curse you to your face. All right, you may test him, the Lord said to him. Do whatever you want with anything he possesses, but don't harm him physically. So Satan left the Lord's presence. And one day, when Job's sons and daughters were feasting at the oldest brother's house, a messenger arrived at Job's home with this news. Your oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. When the Sabaeans raided us, they stole all the animals and killed all the farmhands. And I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger arrived with this news. The fire of God has fallen from heaven and burned up your sheep and all the shepherds. I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, a third messenger arrived with this news. Three bands of Chaldean raiders have stolen your camels and killed your servants. I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. And as if that weren't enough... Verse 18, while he was still speaking, another messenger arrived with this news. Your sons and your daughters were feasting in the oldest brother's home, and suddenly a powerful wind swept in from the wilderness and hit the house on all sides. The house collapsed, and all your children are dead. I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. Job stood up and tore his robe in grief. And then he shaved his head and fell to the ground. What does it say? I'm sorry, one more time. He fell down on the ground and worshiped. Is that the first response when you get bad news? And then he said, I came from my mother's womb. And I will be naked when I leave. The Lord gave me what I had, and the Lord has taken it away. Praise the name of the Lord. (laughs) In all of this, Job did not sin by blaming God. Here's the key point this morning. Though we may lose everything, God's peace can still reign in our hearts if we trust him. It depends on your motives, though. Because if you love God and worship God for God's sake, no matter what you lose in this life, he's all that you need. I want to look at a couple things from this passage this morning. And let me point out this one point. Our motives for worshiping God cannot be selfish. They just can't be. I could end it there and let you go home after this point. 
but I'm a preacher and a preacher's got to preach. So our motives for worshiping God cannot be selfish. Again, as a pastor, I see, I've seen and continue to see all too often people worshiping God for their sakes rather than for his. It's a different perspective. When we worship God for God's sake, a whole new realm of freedom and peace opens up to us. When we worship God for our sakes, when things don't go our way, what happens to our peace and our hope? We question God, as Job did. Why? God, why are you allowing this to happen? Why did you allow my child to die? Why did you allow my spouse to die? Why did you allow me to get the terminal illness that I have? Why? Why did this happen? You knew, you could have stopped it. Why didn't you stop it? This is one of the arguments that atheists use all the time. If God is all powerful and if he's all loving, then why doesn't he stop the evil in this world? Because quite frankly, stopping the evil in this world would mean stopping this world. And some people wish it would, quite frankly. But we are told in the New Testament the reason things have not come to a conclusion is because God still desires people to know him intimately. The reason that he hasn't come back because we want him to right now. Come back, Jesus. We want him to come back because we're selfish. Do you hear? I don't mean to step on toes, but I do. Jesus, come quickly. Why? Because we don't want to have to suffer anymore. But the reason Jesus tarries in returning is because he's allowing more to hear the gospel of, the, of Jesus Christ, to receive him so that they too can have everlasting life. Amen. So the reality is, and the truth of the matter is, it's the mercy of God that holds back the final judgment. But we think God's evil and we give him a bad rap because bad things happen to good people. You've heard me say this before. Is there any good person on the face of the earth? And the reason we know this is because Scripture tells us, Paul's words, and I say this a lot, we have all what? And fallen short of God's glorious standard. So who has sinned? Does that mean we're good or bad? Bad. A couple, yeah, I don't want to say that. I think that means we're bad. But can we be redeemed? Yes. Can we become good? Yes. The only way we can become good is through Christ, who was the only perfect and good person on the face of the earth, which is why when he was crucified, and took the sins of all of us upon himself, he made a way for us to the throne room of grace. And now we can approach that with confidence, knowing we will be not struck down dead in the presence of the Almighty God. That is the mercy of God. And the reason God says, I'm holding back just a little bit longer. 
We see signs of the end of times. We write books on it. We read prophecies, and we love to get wrapped up into that. But do you know what Jesus said about the end of time? Say it again. Nobody knows the end of time except for the Father. So why do we get wrapped up? Why do we get wrapped up in predicting the second coming of Christ when Jesus even said, nobody knows? I think we tend to cloud our thoughts and our minds with things that are frivolous instead of things that are important. And when that happens, the enemy gets us all, even on good things, into this little territory over here where we become ineffective in our daily walk with him so that we don't reach others for the sake of Christ. Why does he tarry? Because of his mercy. Why do bad things happen to good people? We have to keep in mind we all deserve judgment. Jesus is approached by a teacher, or yeah, a teacher of the law. Good teacher, tell me, dot, 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 dot. And you know Jesus' response is, why do you call me good? Why, Why do you call me good? There is no one good but the Father. Now, there were two points to this question. Jesus is saying, do you recognize me as good because I and the Father are one? Are you really making a truth claim about who I am? Are you just buttering me up to get me to do something for you or to say something that you can catch me on so that you can, can condemn or convict me for? You see what he's doing? Why do you call me good? There's no one good but the Father. Jesus makes a truth claim. Everybody is sinful except the Father. And if you call me good, are you equating me with the Father? Are you making a truth claim about who I am? Same thing when Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, who do people say that I am? Well, some say you're Elijah, a good teacher, a prophet, blah, blah, blah. Okay, well, who do you say that I am? And we know that Peter steps up to the plate and he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus is like, woohoo, you got it. That's my boy. And then in the next breath, Jesus tells him to get behind me, Satan. Good times. Seriously, just a few verses later. Read it, it's fun. Are your motives selfish? Now, here's the problem I've had with this passage for a very, very long time. Satan is in the heavenly courts? Is that a question for you too? How does Satan get to be there? All right, you ready? Buckle up. Satan doesn't always mean a specific person of evil. What? (laughs) Hebrew, it's ha-satan. Can you say that with me? Ha-satan. Ha, meaning the. Satan, meaning Satan. In, In this translation, it is the accuser or the adversary. So when Jesus calls Peter Satan, what's he calling him in the New Testament? You're my adversary right now. Your mind is not on things of the Father. This is God's will that I do this, that I go to the cross. And you're trying to stop that. That's not right. Get behind me, Hasatan. Now, is there a real embodiment of evil? Yes. 
He's oftentimes equated with the serpent in the garden, the embodiment of the presence of evil, which makes appearances throughout human history, throughout the context of Scripture. We get this picture of the heavenly courts where you have these divine beings, not gods, but created by God as divine beings. You might call them messengers or the heavenly court, those who do God's work, angels. And some of them have specific responsibilities. What was the final plague that came across Egypt? The death of the firstborn. The death of the firstborn was the angel of death swept through. So now we have this accuser. Who is this? Hasatan, the accuser, the adversary. It's almost like he is a prosecuting attorney. A lot of scholars, if you read the commentaries, will say it's like the prosecuting attorney in the fallen world that's going around saying this person has sinned, this person. And so God is saying, but have you noticed my servant Job? He's not perfect, but man, he's living a blameless life. He's, he fears me. Have you noticed how good he is? Oh, yeah, here's the thing, though, God. If you were to take everything away from him, he'd curse you to your face. He's only following you because of the blessings. If you allowed hardship to come into his life, he'd turn on you so fast. Why did God allow Job to be tested? That's the second question I often hear and I often ask myself is, I've come to understand and believe that God had such faith in Job that he did believe uh, that he that he did believe that he would not falter under duress. See, this is the kind, do you ever believe God has faith in you? Okay, I'm, I'm gonna, we are told to have faith in God. We cannot please God without faith, the writer of Hebrews tells us, right? It is by grace through faith that we are saved. Or by faith, through, no, by grace through faith that we are saved, okay? So faith is a catalyst, it is the benchmark of salvation. But we often don't think of, does God have faith in us? If God didn't have faith in us, why do you think he would have sent Jesus to die on the cross? He knew there would be some that would spit in his face, that would beat or mock him. He knew there would be some that would reject them to their dying breath, but he also knew that if given half the chance some would say, Father, forgive me. Jesus, or excuse me, God had faith in Jonah, I contend, which is all the reason why. He said, fine, go ahead and test him, but I can't. I, he didn't say, I guarantee you. But he said, I'm almost positive he won't turn from me. I think that's the case in Job's situation. I want you to know, when you start to get down on yourself, when you start to doubt yourself and question yourself and beat yourself up over silly things, God says, I believe in you. Do you believe in me? I care for you. Do you care for me? I have faith in you to do the right thing. Do you have faith in me that I am good and always do what's right? So test him, because we are not, any of us, above being tested. What does testing do? 
when we're put through the furnace fires of hell on earth, what does it do to the purest metals? It refines it. And I love the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who would not bow to the idol that Nebuchadnezzar put in place because when they were thrown in the fire, not only were they purified, who was with them? Someone, Nebuchadnezzar said, that looks like the Son of God. <laughs> the very Christ preeminent was there in the fire with them. And so when you go through fire like Job does, when you go through loss like Job does, God has faith in you. Do you have faith in him? And do you have faith in yourself? The second point this morning is this. Our response to the bad things that happen in life should not evoke hatred. Oh, this is hard. Because somebody's got to get something coming to them, right? Something bad happens, it's got to be somebody's fault. Even if it's my fault, I got to beat up on somebody. And when there's nobody to beat up on physically, where do we take our beat ups to? Right? If you read on in the story, Job's wife is still with him. <laughs> I chuckled about this. Job's wife is still with him. The one who is. One, no, the one who is one with him, right? She gets frustrated. Job, why don't you just curse God and die? I joke about, well, I don't joke about this. I talk about this in seventh grade. I'm like, can you imagine? I know you're seventh graders. You can't imagine being married right now. But just think about this for a minute. You've lost everything. And the one person that you want to lean on is saying, curse God and die. He lost everything. He was utterly alone. Or was he? You see, his response after the loss of everything is to get down Shaved head and all. Utterly, utterly alone and without anything. Where do you go when that happens? Because Job had built a strong foundation of faith and worship in his God. The one place he went was always back to God. I don't understand those who don't have Christ in their lives. And how, how can you suffer great loss and maintain any sense of sanity? Any sense of hope or courage to take the next step for each moment, much less each day. He didn't curse God. He worshiped God thus proving God's faith in him and thus disproving Satan's theory against him. Do you prove Satan's theory against you? 
and how you live each day and how you deal with the battles and losses in life? Do you give in to the tactics of the enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy every ounce of who you are? Or do you worship God in the bad times as well as in the good? Our hope to make sense, the third point is, of evil in this world, especially when it affects us directly, is by trusting in God completely. This sounds counterproductive, I know. But it's not. See, this is the total revolutionary idea of faith in God is that it is countercultural to the rest of the world. It should promote trust in God when we go through bad things because he's the one with all the answers and the know-how on how to fix what is broken. So where do you go? It says in all of this, Job did not sin by blaming God. The question truly is, is God to blame? If you read my notes, I've written a large treatise on this. I'm not going to break it down for you right now. I realize time is of the essence. What did God create perfectly? The world, creation, and humanity. Where does the breakdown occur? With me. You see, God, in all of his goodness, created everything good. What made things become bad is disobedience. Not from God, but from us toward God. And what was set in motion from Genesis 3 on is this fallenness, this brokenness, this degradation, all of these bad things that spin out of control into what we have right now is not a result of God, but a result of us in our disobedience. We say, but if he, why did he plant the tree of the knowledge of good and evil there? It was a bad tree. Why would he do that? Again, I contend because God is a God of love. That is the very nature of God. Love demands a choice. If love doesn't allow for a choice, it is not love. But also love being the very nature of who God is, what does love do? Love creates. Love doesn't sit on its haunches and do nothing. Love moves and creates and works and develops. And it develops what is good. This is why Jesus says the greatest commandment is to love God and love others. Because in that love, we bring about goodness. When we don't love is when evil has an opportunity to take root, to take hold, and to wreak havoc. This is why Jesus says it's so important that not only do you love those who love you in return, but also love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Why? Because in the very essence of God, that's what he does. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. Love is the defining factor of God. So is God to blame? I guess if you want to take it to the nth degree, God created the potential for evil to exist, but he could not have created a world in which we 
could be loved by him and love him in return without the option to reject him. This is a great philosophical context and concept because if you look at any other possibility of a created order, this is the best of all scenarios that could have ever been created even though it's broken. Why? Because if God did not give the option to not choose him, they would have been forced into submission to his love. Is that love? See, one of the things that God cannot be is contrary to his nature. And so he took great risk in creating all of creation, especially humans, knowing that the potential existed for evil. And then you flash forward in the picture and you have people like Job, who by the world standards are good people. They're God-fearing. Even God says he's blameless and righteous. Didn't mean he's sinless, but it meant that he was a good man. But he wasn't perfect. Because he was born into a world of brokenness and sin and sorrow. And that's what happens to all of us. Is we are affected either directly or indirectly at some point in time in human history by evil. You cannot help be touched and tainted by evil because we live in a fallen and broken world. The only hope for salvation from this mess is through Jesus Christ. It's to worship God. It's to pray. It's to seek his face. It's to fall on our knees and worship in the good and the bad times. And to surrender to the fact that he is not only love, but he can be trusted even when we don't understand what we're going through. I'm going to close with this. On February the 11th of 1962, there was a magazine called Parade Magazine. You guys remember that? It published the following brief account, itself a commentary on artificial motivation entitled Still Munching Candy was the title of this article. The article was a glimpse into the life of a famous world leader. Listen to what it states. At the village church in Kalav- Kalonovaka, it's Russia, I don't speak Russian. Needless to say, it was a small Russian city, okay? At this small Russian town, at this small village church, there was attendance at Sunday school, uh, and it picked up at this small church after the priest started handing out candy to the little peasant children in the surrounding area. To get them to come to church and to Sunday school, he would give them candy. You want some candy, little kid? Sorry. (laughs) I'm sorry, I digress. That is a horrible analogy here. Please forgive me. (laughs) One of the most faithful was this pug-nosed little kid, pugnacious. And he recited the scriptures that the priest gave him with proper piety. He pocketed his reward and then he fled into the fields to munch on it. The priest took a liking to this little boy and persuaded him to attend the church school. Well, this was preferable to doing household chores for this little boy. 
which his devout parents excused him for to go to this Catholic school. By offering other inducements, the priest managed to teach the boy the four gospels. In fact, he won a special prize for learning all four gospels by heart and reciting them nonstop in church. It's pretty amazing. Now, 60 years later, this was in 1962, mind you, he still likes to recite scriptures, but in a context that would horrify the old priest. For the prized pupil who memorized so much of the Bible was Nikita Khrushchev, the former communist czar. As this anecdote illustrates, the why behind the memorization of Scripture was fully important as the what. The same Nikita Khrushchev who nimbly mouthed God's word when he was a child later declared God to be non-existent because his cosmonauts who he launched into outer space didn't find him there. Khrushchev memorized scriptures for candy, the rewards, the bribes, rather than for the meaning it had for his life. You see, artificial motivation will produce artificial results. When pressure comes on the church, when persecution comes on the church, attendance goes down. Why? Because I'm not motivated to receive the persecution. I'm not motivated for Christ enough to withstand the persecution. I'm only motivated for what I can get out of it. Why do you go to church? Do you truly believe in God? And are you truly in the relationship with him for his sake? You see, when you... Jesus says, if you want to save your life, what do you have to do? You lose it. For my sake, he says. But you lose your life if you hold on to it. What's your motivation? What can you gain? We're going to watch this clip in just a moment. It's going to be actually our call to the altar. Worship team is not going to come forward. I will have you stand. But this clip is a song of Job. It was written by, uh, actually formulated for the story, which is a Bible script, uh, Randy Frazee, um, and uh, it's going to be shown here in a moment. It's about six minutes long. But I want you to see on the screen what it might have been like for Job. But in the midst of that, I want you to know the altars are open. If you come to my right, your left, somebody will pray with you. You don't have to pray alone. But if you want to pray alone, I have an altar on this side that, um, to my left, your right. You can come and pray to God. Again, God meets you where you are. You can pray in the pew. But here's the challenge today. And the challenge is, if you were to lose everything, would you still worship God? Are you motivated to believe in him and to worship him for the right reasons? Would you still trust him if everything was lost in your life, but all you had was him. You see, in the end, all we really need is him. 
the pharaohs of Egypt tried to take things with them, but their tombs still contained the treasures of life. And they couldn't take it beyond the grave. So even if you lost everything, would he still be enough for you? Let me pray over you and they'll start the video. Heavenly Father, I would like to think we're motivated by a sincerity of heart to truly know you as we are fully known by you. But I've been around long enough to know that there are people that only follow you for what they feel they can get out of you and then when they don't get it, God, they curse you or they reject you or they walk away completely. I pray that those within the sound of my voice this morning wouldn't do that. That rather than running away when the going gets tough, that they would press in even harder to you. That, God, they would find not only solace, but peace and comfort by knowing that you are trustworthy and that you are love. Have your way this morning, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me? Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.